Our scripture this morning is Philippians 4, 2 through 7. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thanks, Stephanie. Good morning. I'm going to begin this morning by reading a statement from the elders to all of us. In recent days, there's been a lot of controversy and conflict in America over the white supremacy movement and the alt-right. Some in our own church body have been verbally attacked by some of these same people because of our commitment to love and minister to refugees. It may not need to be said, but the elders of Cole Community Church wanted to state very clearly that we condemn white supremacy and the alt-right and such racist attitudes and groups as unbiblical and contrary to the gospel. And in fact, we condemn any movement or action that contradicts the biblical message that every human being is created in God's image and is equally loved by God. No matter their race, color, gender, economic status, age, education, citizenship status, etc. We proclaim the true dignity of every individual from conception through old age. And we stand against anyone, whether politically to the right or the left, that would treat another human being with less than full respect and compassion. The gospel breaks down all barriers that people might use to divide us and makes us one in Christ. And Jesus calls us to love all people equally by his power and through his spirit. Therefore, we at Cole stand with all the minorities and powerless in our society who are now fearful of being targets of hate and intimidation. Regardless of the response of others who may call themselves Christians, may we here at Cole always live out love and truth in a way that breaks down the barriers that our world uses to divide us. Amen. All right. Well... One of the things I've seen in Scripture is that the true church, true believers, are the most powerful force on earth. The true church is God's instrument for bringing in the kingdom of God. It is the body of Christ on earth, his hands and his feet. If you look at history, most all schools, hospitals, recovery houses, rescue missions, orphanages, 
and most all other benevolence organizations were originally founded by Christians. Salt preserves meat to keep it from rotting. Jesus calls us the salt of the earth to preserve it from self-destruction. Light drives out darkness. Jesus calls us the light of the world to bring light and truth into a dark world. It's a wonderful position God has placed the church, but (laughs) Satan knows all that, right? And therefore, his plan is to render the church as weak and ineffective as possible so that we might not live out our calling as salt and light in the world. And one of the primary tools of Satan for weakening the church is through conflict. (laughs) Both interpersonal conflict between one another and intrapersonal conflict within ourselves through fear and anxiety. So here in chapter 4, of Philippians as Paul gets very practical. Paul addresses these two kinds of conflict. And apparently he does so because the church in Philippi was being hampered by these very things. It was being rendered ineffective because of the conflict that was eating away its health. And his very practical wisdom that he gives the church in Philippi can be very helpful to us today in 2017 as we think about the power and effectiveness of the church as we deal with these very real attacks ourselves that tend to tie our hands and prevent us from being the salt and light we are called to be. Let's pray together and then we'll look at this text together. Lord, thank you for the high calling you've given us as the people of God in a world that is full of corruption and darkness. And Lord, we want to be the church you've called us to be, but we, we understand we struggle with these things, with conflict with others and, and anxiety within ourselves. So may your word that is so real and so practical today help us to be the people of God you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Certainly one of the hardest things I have had to deal with in 35 years of ministry is relational conflict. Either conflict between two people within the church or people being upset at me. <laughs> and since I'm natural, naturally a people pleaser, <laughs> I can't stand it when I have unresolved issues with other people. And yet sometimes it happens. God has used that to help me trust Him more at those times when I couldn't resolve an issue with someone else. But we are called to try. We are called to seek peace with one another. Because as I've said, conflict harms the body of Christ. It weakens it like a virus, which maybe attacks a few cells, but it begins to spread and the whole body, physical body, gets weakened by that virus. So a conflict between two people can affect the whole body of Christ. Now, let me say that to resolve conflict isn't easy. And as Romans 12, verse 18 says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It always takes two parties, right? 
But I think there's some wonderful principles we can learn here in this passage about how we can do our part to resolve conflict and how the church can be involved in that as well. Now, notice, I think, as Paul shares what he does here in Philippians chapter 4, I think he's learned some things. You recall back in Acts chapter 15 when Paul and Barnabas were about ready to head out on the second missionary journey and Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them. And Paul says, no way. He abandoned us on our last trip. I am not taking him. And they had a major conflict and they split. Now it's 10 years later as Paul is writing this book of Philippians. And I think he's learned some things. I think he would have responded differently to Barnabas if he had been as mature as he is with what he shares in this book in Philippians chapter 4. Notice how he begins right away. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. See, I think as he comes to this passage, Paul is seeing this conflict between these two women as something that is harming the church in Philippi, keeping it from being the church it was called to be. In fact, I think the entire book of Philippians is kind of pointing towards his dealing with this issue that was hurting the church. So now Paul confronts it directly. Now, who were these two women? Sometimes we think about a couple of women having a conflict. You know, they were arguing over the color of the carpet in the foyer or something. Well, we are told what the conflict was over. We don't know what they were arguing about or what the problem was that was creating conflict. I think it was probably much bigger than carpet color. (laughs) But what we do know about these two women is that they were leaders in the church. They were important people to Paul and to the church in Philippi. They were co-laborers with Paul, he calls them. He treats them as equal in the ministry of the gospel. He says they're co-laborers and fellow workers In the gospel, as one commentator put it, these were two magnificent women, important women, leader women in the church. And he addresses their importance, demonstrates their importance by addressing their conflict in the church. Now, let me say, as we approach this text, we're all sinful people. Right. We're we're all growing in Christ, but we're not arrived yet. So we all inevitably have areas that are difficult for other people to deal with. It means that you and I will inevitably have conflict as my sin rubs shoulders with your sin. But it's interesting in today's culture today, we have kind of gotten away from really dealing with conflict in the church because if we can't get along with somebody, what do we do? We go to another church. We just leave. We don't have to face it. We don't have to deal with it. Philippi, they didn't have that option because probably in Philippi at this point, the church only was one small church body. They had nowhere else to go. But let me just say that when we have a conflict with someone and we leave because we don't want to deal with it 
and we go to another church, I think you end up harming both churches. And certainly yourself. A more godly response is to stay and work it out. But how do we work out the conflict? That's the hard part, right? Because usually when we have conflict, we're so sure that we're right. (laughs) And the other person is wrong. Well, Paul demonstrates six actions I want to highlight in this text in how he deals with the conflict in Philippi. And I think as we think these through, I think it may help us think about how to deal with conflict either with us and someone else or between two friends of ours that are having conflict that we might want to help. I think these are very practical ways that we can learn better ways to deal with conflict in our own lives and in our church. Action number one. Notice what Paul does. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The first thing he does, action number one, is he makes the conflict public. Interesting, isn't it? How would you like it if we put in the bulletin some Sunday? By the way, Fred and Ed are not getting along. We really urge them to work this thing out. But notice, too often, we know two people are having conflict, friends of ours. They're not talking, or they're upset, there's tension between them, and it's just kind of sitting there. And we know about it, but we ignore it and hope it kind of goes away. Or we hope they work it out. Or, or people think their conflict with someone else only affects them. Yeah, we've, we've got conflict here, but it's just between us. Well, I think what this text encourages us to see is that conflict hurts the whole body. It impacts the whole body of Christ. And probably everyone knew about this conflict anyway between Euodia and Syntyche. So he points it out to the whole church. Now, I'm not advocating that we print people's names in the bulletin. But I do think this challenges us to remember that if I'm in conflict with someone else, it affects the whole church, even if no one else knows. And it challenges us to deal with it. Action number one, Paul makes the conflict public. Action number two, Paul exhorts them to think the same thing. I urge you, Odia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord is how it's translated in my translation. Literally in the Greek, it's I encourage or exhort them to think the same thing. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that, okay, you have one of you has to give in and agree with the other person, whatever the issue is. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's saying that they have to agree on the particular issue, but that they see beyond the issue to what they can agree on. The bigger, more important issues of the gospel. Think about our joy picture up here. Hopefully you can all see that it's puzzle pieces, right? And I kind of picture this as, Yodi and Syntyche, you know, they're, they're looking at their own puzzle piece with their face on it. 
And they're saying, you know what? Mine's more important than yours. No, no, my puzzle piece is more important or my theology or my idea or my opinion or whatever it is is more important than yours. But all they can see is their own puzzle piece. And they disagree on it. And I think what Paul's exhorting them to do is say, no, you need to see that your puzzle piece is just part of something far bigger. And you are an important part of the whole picture, but stop focusing on just your piece and see the bigger picture of which you both are part of, Euodia and Syntyche. That you can agree on. (laughs) That is what I want you to think the same thing about. Action number three. Paul says this in verse three. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. We don't know who that was. Some people think it's a name, loyal Susigus. We don't really know who this person was. All we know is that Paul is asking this person to come alongside. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul says, loyal companion, Help them. Come alongside and help these women. What, what does that mean? Well, he uses an interesting word for help here. Paul could, use, could have used a variety of words, but the particular Greek word he uses is one that's used in Luke chapter 5, verse 7, where the disciples have been fishing all night, and they are exhausted. And Jesus, standing on the shore, says, Hey, put your net on the other side of the boat. And they're like, yeah, right. (laughs) Total waste of time. We're the fishermen. You don't really understand fishing. (laughs) The other side of the boat's not any better than the one we've been fishing on. But okay. They put the net out. The catch is so great. They can't pull it in. And so they call for the other boat to help. Same word as here. And so when I picture, he says to loyal Susigus or whoever it is, the loyal companion, come help these women. It's this picture that the women are stuck in this conflict and can't seem to work it out. It's just cotton too big for them. The net's too full. They can't pull it in. And so he says, loyal companion, come alongside them to help them get through this conflict that is dividing them and harming the church. They're just too stuck in resentment or in pain or in attitudes that they can't change. It's too big for them to handle. Let me say that what this encouragement is. If you're stuck in a conflict, or you know people who are stuck in a conflict, who can't work it out, then I encourage you to ask godly folks to step in and help you. It's okay. We need to get through this together in the body of Christ. We've had a number of times where elders, we as elders, have stepped into conflicts between people to help them through it. Sometimes you just need help. When I was on a missions trip years ago and I was in Pakistan and we went there to train native pastors who were the poorest of the poor, they're the lowest caste in Pakistan. The Christians are. It's really a tough place 
for them to minister. So we went to train them. And we met on this seminary ground in Gujranwala, Pakistan. But when we got there, we just sensed spiritually something's not right here. And as we started asking around, we realized the seminary was not doing very well. They had nine students in a seminary that could hold many more than that and 13 faculty. And we thought, what is wrong here? What's happening here? And then we began to hear that two of the faculty were fighting. They could not get along and they would not work it out. And it was destroying. Uh, They're already in this place, Pakistan. That's one of the toughest places to minister in the world. And yet here they are fighting with one another. And we began to see that our purpose for going there was less to train the native pastors than to work it out, this issue, so that the seminary could be healthy and men and women could be discipled and trained through the seminary to impact their own culture. So we spent the week we were there primarily working with that and finally resolving that issue. Sometimes you just need help to work through an issue. Action number four strikes me what Paul does, what he models for us, is he reminds them that they are part of God's big kingdom. (laughs) Paul reminds them that they are part of God's big kingdom. Notice what he says. He says, you know, that they are uh, co-laborers with me side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They're they're written in the book of life. These are believers. These are people that are co-laborers with me. And I like that word co-laborer. In the Greek, it's soon athleo. Recognize that word, athleo, athlete, athletics. It's that word of we're on the same team, ladies. What you're doing here is like getting in the huddle for football and, and one of you goes, I don't like the way you've tied your shoes. Well, I don't like the way your shirt's untucked. And the quarterback says, knock it off. We've got a play to run. We've got a bigger purpose here. Stop worrying about these small details. I, I understand it's important to you, but that's, there's a bigger picture here. You're part of God's big kingdom. So let's... Focus on that. Get on board. You are part of the athleo, the team. You're part of his plan to be salt and light in the world. And God's used you before. So let's not waylay what God's doing in your lives, ladies. There's bigger things at stake here. So I like the way he does that. He reminds them, you're co-laborers in a bigger picture. You're teammates. In the kingdom of God. Action number five. Paul exhorts them to rejoice in the Lord always. Interesting. Uh, this verse seems kind of out of place, doesn't it? Verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. What does this mean? Why, why does he throw this in there in the midst of all this practical help? Well, I think he's saying in the midst of life. In the midst of the craziness of life, it's so easy to focus on the issues, right? And and keep your eyes on them. And so you're looking at all the stuff that's going on and, and it just kind of distracts you and pulls you down. And one of the most important things you can do 
really practically in dealing with conflict is get your eyes on the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And see, to rejoice in the Lord means you're looking at what God has done that's good. And I don't care what you're going through. We all go through suffering and difficulty and hardship. But whatever you're going through, you can always rejoice in the Lord. Always, as he says, for the incredible salvation that God has given you. That he died on the cross for you, that he loved you enough. And he, the father sent his son to die for you. And he gave up his life, but he rose again and he's now Lord. You can always rejoice in the Lord for the fact that he's at work in your life, that he loves you and he's changing you through the things that life is throwing at you. You're being sanctified. You're being changed. And you can always rejoice in the Lord for the hope that you have in Christ, that you will be with him someday. And not only that, but you will be like him someday. And see, once you begin to rejoice in the Lord and look at the bigger picture of what you truly have to rejoice in, the issue you have with another person suddenly pales in the perspective of it all. You know what these are, right? (laughs) Yeah, eclipse glasses. I can't see you at all. (laughs) You know why? Because these are made to look at the sun. I can barely make out a light or two. But they're made to focus on the sun. But you can't see anything else. You see, to rejoice in the Lord is, is essentially to say, I'm going to focus on you, Lord, and not on everything else. Essentially, what he's saying is put on your eclipse glasses where everything else will fade out of you. And you're looking at him and his glory and his goodness and his awesomeness. Isn't it interesting that we don't think a lot about the sun? We look at everything else. The sun is what illuminates everything. We wouldn't be able to see if it weren't for the sun, but we, we don't look at it because it would hurt our eyes, right? But we don't, we don't even think about it a lot. We, we think about all the other stuff. But what Paul is saying is, okay, put on your eclipse glasses, look at the sun, focus on him, and everything else just kind of will fade away. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And then finally, in verse 5, Paul exhorts them to forbearance. Verse 5, let your reasonableness, let your gentleness, some of the translations say, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That word is really the word forbearance. Of course, that's an old word, but it means to put up with. To let it go, to put up with the faults of others because you know that your faults are just as bad. And as he says, the Lord is near. The Lord is coming back soon. The Lord's going to make everybody right. He's going to fix it all. We'll all be like Jesus. The fact that the Lord is coming soon and he's going to set me right and you right. Why am I worried about a little issue in your life now? Why am I making that the problem? You see, and he says something interesting. He says, let your gentleness, forbearance, reasonableness be known to all men, to all people. In other words, what he's saying is that in your relationships with one another, what should be most visible about you when people look at you is that you're willing to put up with a lot. 
to overlook, to cover over the sins of others, to let it go for the sake of relationship. They are not hanging on to stuff. They are not critical. If they see you as the opposite, yeah, they're a really angry person. They're a critical person. They hold on to grudges. They don't let things go. They always have to point out other people's sins. Then you are not living out this verse. But to live out this verse means you, you just overlook a lot. Forbear. You put up with, you let it go. Is that how you are known? Is that how I am known? So I think all these actions are very, very practical in helping us deal with conflict with others. But how about inner conflict of anxiety and fear, the things that tend to eat us up inside? Where Paul goes on to say, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why, why does he address this here? Well, he knows Satan can paralyze us, too, by our inner anxiety, by the conflict within ourselves. I like the quote by Corey Tenboom, where she says, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. This age has been called the age of anxiety because, you know, our, our world is so complex. We get hit with so many things. Our lives are full of anxiety. We, we tend in our culture to take a lot of medication to try to dampen that. There are times you need to take medication if you can't function well. I'm not saying you can't, but as Christians, we have ways to deal with anxiety that should, in the long run, help us get through it in a godly way. Anxiety is at root a fear, a fear of loss of control. And we're confronted with so much stuff through the media, through our world today that is out of our control. It raises our anxiety level. So much stuff, bad stuff that we can't do anything about. So how are we to deal with this anxiety? Do we just check out? Just try to ignore it? Close our eyes to it? Or like many of us, do we try to figure it all out? If we just, if I can just get on top of it, I feel more control if I feel like I could just understand it. So we just constantly want more information to try to figure out how to deal with it. But is there a better way? Well, the Philippians were apparently struggling with anxiety too. So Paul basically says this, you want to know how to deal with anxiety? <laughs> Prayer. Oh yeah, I've heard that. We've all heard this verse. Yeah. Well, let me just talk this through because I think Paul's being very, very practical here. He says, in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. He mentions three kinds of prayer. The first is a more general word for prayer about intimacy with God. If you're dealing with anxiety, and we all do, first thing he says is, Connect with God. Get in relationship with God. Be looking at Him. And that includes praise. That includes thanksgiving. That includes, you know, focus on Him and who He is. But get in relationship with Him. Because that helps you see that He's so much bigger than your circumstances. Howard Hendricks, who has spoken years ago here at Cole, used to love to say, yeah, two guys are talking. And one of them says, how you doing? The other one says, oh, 
pretty good under the circumstances. The other guy says, well, what are you doing under there? <laughs> See, prayer gets us out from under the circumstances. It opens our eyes to see, okay, God, you're in this somehow. I'm bringing you into the picture. I'm not going to let this issue that I'm anxious about get a hold of me. I'm going to focus on you. Secondly, he says supplication. What is supplication? It's taking the thing you're anxious about and lifting it up to God and saying, God, I need you to intervene. I need you to do something here and, and share with God what you want him to do. It lifts it up to him. So you begin to put it in his hands. If you're anxious about a wayward child, anxious about a relationship, your marriage or your finances or your job or whatever it might be, Lord, I, I need you to work here. Here's, here's where I, how I would like you to work in this situation. That's appropriate, Paul says. But then notice third, and the part we often forget is thanksgiving. What does that mean? Thanksgiving is as you lift it up to God, you say, and God, whatever you choose to do, not my will, but yours be done. I thank you that what you will do will be the right thing because I'm trusting in your goodness and your sovereignty. And what that allows you to do is open your hand and let it go and say, God, OK, whatever you choose to do, I'm leaving it in your hands. I'm trusting in you to take care of this. You see, when you go to Thanksgiving, thank you for what you will do. Thank you that your way is best. Thank you that you have a bigger plan than I can see. Thank you, God, that you're in this. And when we truly choose to do that, what happens is he says, you end up with a peace that's beyond comprehension. 3.30 this morning, I woke up and I got all keyed up. And I was thinking through a number of things that are happening and I was anxious. I was struggling with some things. And I thought, wait a minute, what are you preaching on? God, why do you always have to apply the scripture to me? And I said, oh yeah, thankfulness. God, thank you that you're already at work in this. Thank you that you love my wayward son more than I do. Thank you that you are at work in ways that I cannot see. Thank you, God, that it's in your hands. And I went back to sleep. Not immediately. <laughs> he says it's a peace that surpasses all comprehension, all understanding. You can't figure it out. And you can't get there by trying to figure it out. You simply get there through prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. That's the only way to have the peace that God offers. Because what you've done is you have given it to God. And he says... And it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Remember, they're in the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But how do they keep peace? By military might. But he says, you know, what's really going to guard your hearts and minds and give you security in life. It's not the Roman military. It's a peace that comes as you truly give it to God. You may have heard this poem before, David Roper Love to used to quote it. It says this, said the robin to the sparrow. I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin. Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you 
and me. The difference of how to deal with conflict with one another or within ourselves. Did you notice the answer's the same? Get your eyes on him. Put on your eclipse glasses so that you see him and in a sense everything else doesn't really matter once you've rejoiced in the Lord and put the issue in his hands with thankfulness and prayer. Let's pray. Lord, how practical your word is because these are things we all struggle with. May we live these out as we deal with conflict with one another and as we deal with our own anxiety in such an anxiety-ridden world. May we learn what it means to rejoice in you and truly open our hands to you in thankfulness. Thank you for your love, your care, your presence with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.